0: The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story.
1: It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age
0: of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast.
1: This is Nightwatch. Reporting from New York, Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. And welcome to our news segment, Gargoyles fans. I'm your co-host, Greg Mushansky, and joining me as usual is my partner in crime and co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: And joining us for this news segment is the co-creator, co-producer... And, and the writer of the SLG and now current Dynamite comic books. And we're going to have a lot to talk about there shortly. Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi. First of all, I want to say it was fantastic seeing both of you at Wicked West Comic Expo recently. It was yeah, a great time. it was
2: fun. It was fun and to hang out with you guys again.
0: Uh, yeah, I had a great time at Wicked West. It was great seeing you guys. Great seeing uh, Patrick and um, Mara and Kit. And, um, uh, we did three panels, which were not heavily attended, but were fun, <laughs> intimate mm-hmm. sort of panels, <laughs> cozy, cozy, panels. cozy. Yeah. It was people came by the table. That was great. Uh, I hadn't done the con since 2019. So, um,
2: first one back it was in the a
0: nice way to ease back into it. And I want to thank Todd Jones for inviting me and for being just a terrific host through the whole thing.
1: All right. We have a little bit of news to discuss. As I've said, we'll start with NECA. We'll be brief about this. Brooklyn and Broadway are finally hitting stores. So if you keep an eye out. If you see them out in the wild, pick them up or order them from your local online toy store. Angela is up for pre-order. So hopefully we'll see her sometime this year. And they also put up a pre-order, if you're into that, the Sega Genesis Goliath. Repaint. So if you like that one, pick that up too. And now we've got some really big news to discuss. Dark Ages. Greg, how did that come about? Well,
2: first, explain Dark Ages, what uh, he's talking about here.
0: So uh, Dark Ages is a new uh, six-issue limited series uh, that uh, starts in July. It's uh, a prequel to the regular Gargoyles comic. It's set in the year 971, which is 23 years before the Wyvern Massacre, which is was in our pilot um, television pilot for Gargoyles. Um, so you get to see uh, characters like Hudson and Goliath and Damona and Coldstone and Coldfire and Coldsteel, Prince Malcolm, the Captain of the Guard, and others when they're younger considerably younger um back when Hudson was still the guy uh, leading the clan um back before Goliath was even second in command uh I'm I've written the first issue um and Drew Moss is uh, penciling and inking it and the stuff is looking just great um I've seen about half the pages at the time we're recording this, Which is secretly in April. Um,
1: I don't know when it's being released, this podcast, but it's April when we record it. This Um, is coming out in two days. It's coming out at the end of this week. We're cranking this one out. Oh,
0: wow. Okay, well, uh, then shortly. Anyway, uh, at this point, I haven't seen the whole issues art, but what I've seen of it is just great. Um, Drew's knocking it out of the park. Um, just as George has been doing, um, it's very exciting to me. Um, Drew's and posted some how,
2: stuff up on Twitter too. Uh, so we've gotten little glimpses of it and it looks pretty sweet.
0: Yeah. Um, and then in terms of how it happened, um, Nate came to me after, um, Gargoyles one came out and it was, let's just say a hit. Um, and uh said hey do you have other things you'd like to do with the series and i pitched all the all the spin-off sequels and prequels including you know time dancer and gargoyles 2198 and uh um coordinate didn't know what he was asking Pendragon, yeah <laughs> you know um and uh and among them was uh gargoyles the Dark Ages. And um I submitted short proposals for every one of these and um you know and said I'd be happy to do any of them. And Dynamite and Disney, I guess, sort of uh compared notes or whatever, and they all decided that Dark Ages is the one they wanted to start with, at least. Um and I'm like, great. <laughs> and um, I'm sure, so that's I'm what sure none of
2: us would have been crying if any of the other ones had been the choice. Right. You know,
0: I, they're all stories I want to tell. They're all stories I've had for a long time. Uh, there was uh, a Dark Ages story back when we were doing SLG that I was really dying to tell. And this is not that one because um, I really felt back then I felt like, well, I would just done this time Dancer story with Brooklyn that was set in the past. So I'd sort of set things up in the past a bit. So I felt like I could do this sort of really cool one-off story that I had for dark ages. Um, And then all the SLG uh, titles were canceled. Um, This time out, I feel like I've got a, you know, we haven't been back to the past recently, you know? Um, So I felt like I needed to sort of set up the world. Uh, So this is a sort of the first dark ages story, whereas the one I had been talking about way back when, which I'm sure some fans remember and are very curious about. Um, that one was not sort of a, a setup story. That was not sort of an introductory story to the time period. Um, this one is it's set in 971. Um, It basically opens. It's called Alliance. The six issue arch is called the arc is called Alliance. And it uh, sets up the Alliance between Prince Malcolm and. Um, the gargoyle someday to be known as Hudson uh, and launches right into a war. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun writing it. Uh, Drew's doing a great job on the art. So we'll just see what, what happens. I'm halfway through writing issue two of that right now. Um, and uh, it's fun. It's a different challenge, you know, but, uh, but I'm enjoying it. So we'll see. Awesome. Hopefully you guys will like it too.
2: Good to hear.
1: I'm looking forward to seeing how the issue of the characters not having names is handled. People have been discussing that one for ages, so we'll see how that goes. And uh, more news. Issue 5 recently hit the stands, and we're going to discuss our own first impressions of it. And um, I will start by saying, Greg, that line from Hudson in on the opening pages when he described Goliath as the son of his heart.
2: Killed heart me! Out. Killed me! I was just brutalized on the first page. (laughs) Um, yeah, that was, uh, uh,
0: I, I literally got my copies today. So, um, I mean, I've seen it all already, but I haven't held it in my hand before now. And I haven't, um, I haven't had time. Literally. I opened the box three minutes before this recording started. So, uh, I haven't had time to look through it and make sure that there were no mistakes in it (laughs) in the final print version, (laughs) but I'm crossing my fingers that it all turned out. All right. Uh, And uh, I did love the little uh,
2: Elisa getting all butthurt about it, but Matt being like, hey, you know, if you weren't off doing crap by yourself all the time, you might have been in on it.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Although in some ways I kind of think Matt is kidding himself just a little bit here because this is not a good situation for them at all. And um, Greg, I wanted to shake your hand.
2: I think the point that he made that it's better with him in charge than him not in charge is 100% true.
1: Agreed, agreed. We'll de- we'll definitely see where this goes. I'll se- I'll have to add this. If I didn't already hate Margot Yale, I really hate her now. That scene in the courtroom with um, I'm blanking out on the uh, other lawyer's name now, but um, it was with Judge Toby Rubin Crest. And Toby Crest. The way she call- refers to him as an it and a creature and. Uh, it also feels like because you. Well, she's building
0: her case, you know. I mean, she's choosing that language very consciously. I mean, I'm choosing it for her, granted, but but I don't choose that for her. with thinking like she's uh, doing that by accident or uh, inadvertently. She is very intentional. She, she is very intentional in that word choice.
2: And she, I think, she makes the point like right off the bat, where she's like, "Well, you know." Uh, you're saying human rights and he by definition is not human. So like that, so she's going to keep pushing that button. Mm-hmm.
1: So. And I'm, Oh, and I was really glad to see that also because when the solicitation for issue eight came out, which literally says Goliath is going on trial, I saw Jennifer and I saw some people in And in certain groups, Facebook groups, etc., who immediately got concerned. Wait, they're going the Goliath Chronicles route because they did an episode there with um, a trial, and some people were immediately concerned. And I, you know, we switch fears. This is not going to be the same story. But uh, Greg, do you have anything you'd like to say to some fans who are concerned about this, considering that infamous episode?
0: Oh, I mean, you know. I I assume at some point we'll talk about Goliath Chronicles in more detail, but the the short answer is, is that I had a a list of premises for uh, a third season of Gargoyles, which um, the people who made Goliath Chronicles had access to one of the, you know, bullet points on the list was Goliath on trial. Um, They did their version, what they thought, uh, work well for that it i've only seen it once so i don't consider myself an expert on that episode but um it didn't really work for me uh again that's not a criticism of those uh very talented people who worked on goliath chronicles they didn't have time to acclimate to the show they didn't have anything remotely generous in terms of a schedule um and they did you know what they thought was right but it doesn't really it didn't ever really work for me and so this is more along the lines of the story uh i would have old back then if i had been in charge of the third season um and if it had really truly been a third season and not sort of a separate goliath Chronicle sort of offshoot um there's a reason we don't consider goliath chronicles canon um this the difference between that episode and this will show you there may be people who read this story by the time it's done and go i like the goliath chronicles version better and that's okay with me you know everyone has to make their own creative uh choices um but this is a story that i've been wanting to tell literally for uh 28 years or something like that and uh and i'm glad i'm finally getting to tell it and to be perfectly honest it's not a trial it's a hearing Those are two different things. They're similar. They have a lot of things in common, but this is not a trial. It is a hearing. Um, and the, the, uh, episode of Goliath Chronicles was a trial. Um, and again, I'm fairly confident at the time that my bullet point said trial of Goliath and that that's all it said. Um, so, you know, they took that as a springboard and went their way with it and I'm going my way with it, but uh, yeah, in point of fact, we're not going to actually have a trial of Goliath. We're going to have a hearing about Goliath, which is a very different thing. I think yeah. it'll be different.
1: Yeah. And another heartbreaking moment, Broadway not being sure if Brooklyn would stand second when he and Angela are discussing with Cold Fire, their commitment ceremony. So I'm um, looking forward to eventually seeing that more Guardwell cultural reveals Right. And Jen, didn't you, uh, did you squeal like I did when we, dis- when we discovered, we suspected, but we discovered who Lex was talking to?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you, there's been times when I thought I was going to turn this down in front of a keyboard too.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. Um, me too. Like,
2: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Staying up all night chatting with people online. Back in the day. <laughs>
1: been there, um, done that as recently no, as the other that day was
0: super, that was super cute they're adorable yeah, I'm sort of saving the, I mean I know the long time fans know exactly who Amp is but I'm kind of intentionally saving just drawing out the reveal of Amp for new fans a little longer uh, uh, just to have a little fun with it. Um, but yeah, we're going to want to see amp eventually, but, um, uh, not quite yet. Yeah. And the also, question, I'm trying, I, you know, I'm also racking my brain to remember what was the internet like in 1997? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how did people communicate You've got mail. <laughs> 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 trying to, to get that sort of, uh, right i'm not sure at all that i have um but uh but yeah that's one of the fun challenges for me and for george in this book is uh to just keep reminding ourselves this is 1997 it's not 2023 um you don't think about when you're as old as i am about how much has changed i mean i think about how much has changed since the 70s but I don't think about how much has changed since nineteen ninety seven most of the time, but a lot has changed, uh particularly in terms of technology, obviously, which is just you know raced ahead um and uh so it's a, it becomes another thing to keep in mind as I'm going through this is like, wait a minute, what is this? um, what should this car look like? What should that uh, look like? um it's a lot easier when I'm just dealing with flying robots and stuff, but uh. Uh,
2: that didn't exist. The real world now. stuff. <laughs> yeah, real world
1: stuff becomes harder. <laughs> and some fun questions you've left us with, like um, who is uh who paid for the uh Girl Task Force's new weapons and shoppers and uh mysterious benefactors all over the place. I mean, I've got a couple of theories, but I'll keep them to myself and uh <laughs> and uh also, the mystery from last issue, who was is at Silhouette, who um, was saying something must be done. And considering we're attaching this new segment to Outfoxed, I have an idea.
0: <laughs> All well, right. I well, tell
1: you so. <laughs> yeah. I know it was a great issue. Looking forward to issue six. And Jen, do you have any more thoughts on issue five?
2: I, I just, uh, it kind of, like, it was hard on my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, Matt trying so hard to be the the, you know, that trying to help in this horrible situation. And Hudson being upset that um Goliath was taken and and then Hudson going back and tattling is immediately. <laughs> um and then of course we all knew Brooklyn was gonna try to go in for the the rescue, um, our swashbuckler. Um but then you know just you know, no, when Elisa shows up at the prison and, <laughs> and then the, and, you know, the whole, the, the two gangs, like just being upset that, you know, and it's, everything's working according to plan there. Like, well, whoever's, uh um, it's all just, uh, pulling all their alliances apart and, um, I like the the Polaroids of the insurance. <laughs> uh, that was just like, oh, that's brutal. <laughs> but yeah, it it was just it was. I really enjoyed it.
1: Me too. Yeah, Dino is effective even when he's not appearing physically in the issue. So far, so good. And well, well I'm glad you guys it.
0: liked it. I'm I'm really happy with it uh, uh I'm dying to just read the issue in hand um but I'll wait till we're done uh because I can't multitask worth a damn so I won't try um but uh you know I really felt like the story really started to pick up with issue four and so my hope is is that five keeps that um, momentum going and uh and George just sent me a really nice note about six that uh he said, that personally six is his favorite issue that he's drawn so far. So he just finished drawing six. And it looks, I haven't seen any color yet, but I've seen the black and whites on the pencils and inks on six and they look fantastic as always. And, uh, um, and I've written seven. So he's, uh, just about to start on seven, but he felt like six was his favorite issue to draw so far. So I feel good that, we're keeping that momentum up from four that really where things really started to take off. But, um, and hopefully that'll keep going yeah. all the way through the end
1: of here in Manhattan, which will be 12. Um, nice. Getting better with each and every issue I have to say. And I've seen the f- some complaints at the first three with the pacing to which I say to them, well, that's because you had to reintroduce it after over a yeah. decade. If it had been issues 13, 14 and 15 of SLG, they probably would have been paced and written differently. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I mean,
0: but I, I try not to think about oh, if onlys. You know, there, there's too many. Where I mean, you know, if this had been, we'd gotten a real third season, and I had been kept on as a producer for it, a lot of these would have just been episodes. You know, um, and they would have been very different from how they are now. I was a different, I was much younger. I was a different person then um that i had you know hundreds of collaborators as opposed to a handful it, everything changes but the good news is is that at least for me and hopefully for the readership is that okay yeah we didn't get to do it back in the day we didn't get to do it with SLG but we're getting to do it now and these are stories again um some of them i've been wanting to tell for nearly 30 years and um some of them are more recent or at least some pieces of them are more recent but uh uh it's a it's truly a joy for me to uh be able to finally tell some of these stories and i'm hoping that that joy comes through in the comic and that it becomes something that um the readers can really feel is like a a worthy continuation of the series i think it is for me it has been joyous. So oh, yeah, so far I'm just loving it. I mean, not that you guys aren't biased or anything. We, no, maybe just a tiny bit.
2: <laughs> a little <long>, tiny bit. <laughs> do the
0: do our listeners know you guys are fans?
2: Oh, no. oh. did you just out us?
0: Oh. <laughs> yeah, I just
1: outed you. They're
0: <laughs> <laughs> gargoyles fans. Also, we've all been friends for 25 years.
2: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
1: And now for something much less joyous, our final piece of news, something much more somber. Last month, we didn't have time to get into our last news section. Michael Reeves, writer and story editor of the series passed away. And uh to say that his contributions to the series were essential and it wouldn't be the same series without him would be an understatement. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely true. Uh when
0: uh we got the green light to go, um we went through a number of writers again telling the people but they just weren't in sync with what um Frank and I wanted to do with the show. Um and uh finally we found Michael, <laughs> stole him from Batman: The Animated Series, um, and he just got it right out of the gate and uh, took the story that uh, Paul Lacey and I had come up with for the pilot, and uh, which um, had Eric Luke had done a version of that wasn't quite working for us, and and he was able to take. Um, Eric's script, our notes, and uh, our original story, and just make it sing and make the whole thing um, work. Uh, he's the guy, for lack of a better term, who proved the concept. You know, there were there was a point after I went through so many writers, talked to some, worked with some others, um, and they just weren't getting it. Um, that I began to wonder. Uh, seriously whether I uh, what I was trying to do wasn't doable and Michael came in and and proved that uh, what we were doing uh was achievable worthwhile and ultimately uh, with his writing uh fantastic and then he went on to story edit all of the first season and then, which was 13 episodes. And then in uh, season two, when we expanded to 52 episodes, we added three story editors, including his wife at the time, Bryn Chandler Reeves, um, and then uh, Carrie Bates and Gary Sperling. Um, But, uh, but Michael still took on uh, a quarter of those stories. And in fact, out of the first, 13 of the season. I mean, the the first six, he story edited completely because those were ordered before we increased the staff. And then he did a fourth of the everything following those first six. So he did more than a fourth of the second season. And um, his fingerprints are all over uh, the show. Um, And it would not be the show that um, you guys know without him. He was a phenomenally talented guy, phenomenally reasonable guy. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, smart, clever, contributed just a ton to uh,
1: Gargoyles. Um, And uh, he will be missed. On a personal note, he was the first writer for cartoons that I ever really noticed. When I started paying attention to the credits and realizing they had writers i would his name always popped out most and this is years before Gargoyles. and so for a while when i was young i was like hey michael reeves is the man who writes all the cartoons
0: (laughs) and yeah he um, probably didn't write all of the cartoons but yeah he wrote a lot (laughs) and he wrote other stuff too he wrote for (laughs) star trek the next generation he wrote novels he wrote um uh all sorts of stuff uh great stuff um Again, tremendously talented guy and
1: with a tremendous range and so smart. And he will, like I said, he will definitely be missed. <clears throat> to our listeners, thank you for listening and join us right now for Outfoxed. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. Welcome back to another episode of Voices from the Eerie Gargoyles fans. I'm your co-host, Greg bashansky and joining me is my co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. Hello, and also joining us is the supervising producer and co-creator of Gargoyles and the writer of the new Dynamite comic book, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi. An interesting fact, we're about to talk about out Fox. This episode was pulled out of rotation on cable for a little while after... September 11th. Jen, do you remember that?
2: I do remember that, yeah. At the same time, they took the word terrorist out of... uh,
1: City of Stone.
2: City of Stone! Ooh!
1: (laughs) I suppose big aircraft heading towards the tower. I can see why they might want to take that out of rotation for a little while. Even I can see that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We were a very traumatized nation.
1: Yeah, I, I remember quite well. And, re- and then I just realized that there are now adults walking around who don't remember. <laughs> hey, we're discussing a nearly 30-year-old TV series and we were there when it premiered. So <laughs> my
2: my baby boy, my youngest, turned twenty-six this week. So
1: <laughs> congratulations.
2: Feel old with me. Feel old. <laughs>
1: Don't start. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode opened with an intriguing premise. You brought back the air fortress and we talked a little bit about it in the uh, awakening, but what were the inspirations for this thing? I believe you said it was something out of a Miyazaki film. I mean, uh, in this episode or way back then, way back then.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think Miyazaki was an influence on the air fortress as a whole for me and Michael and Frank, um, You know, those turbines, the big machine floating over the city. um, That's a great, bizarre image to be flying over modern Manhattan. Just a little sci-fi, but believable enough within our context, I suppose. Um, But, you know, (laughs) the thing that struck me in this episode, strikes me every time I see it is, that ship has no landing gear. (laughs) Uh, You see it on the tarmac, which we'd never seen before because in season one, yeah, season one, you see it in flight or you see it crash into the river, right? You never see it on the ground in a stable uh, situation. But you do here, and we were reusing the model and that model has no landing gear. (laughs) And it is just, it's got, you know, they added little ramp to walk up the stairs to get inside and the the propellers aren't going when it's on the tarmac so it it appears as if this thing is hovering and the only support it has to keep it off the ground is this little ramp that goes to one of the doors and i just (laughs) every time i see it i'm reminded like oh yeah that came back and we had never created landing gear for this thing And it was just like, and it was our fault. It wasn't um, overseas fault. We just hadn't created it. And somehow it slipped by us and no one noticed until the footage came back. At which point, you know, you can't call for a retake. That's our mistake without paying for it. Um, And then, you know, you need the time to design the thing, send it over. And, and it just became, Yeah, we're just going to hope that no one notices that this thing is just floating there. (laughs) (laughs) But to me, it drives me crazy. Just in case anyone was worried that the show was too perfect. (laughs) Here's proof.
2: I was worried. Uh, Thank you for uh, pointing that
1: out. Here's another little flaw, I guess. Uh It stands out more and more each time. Kind of an excessive use of flashbacks to Awakening here
0: that's another thing that drives me crazy about the episode, which is that, you know, we have our previously, and because we had flashbacks within the episode, we didn't use any of those awakening flashbacks in the previously. It's all about Fox and Xanatos relationship, which tips a lot, I think. And then you get into the episode and we've got two sets of flashbacks that repeat the each other within the episode. And the second set was intentional it's like uh you know they turn on the monitor and they showed goliath what he did wrong um that was intentional and it's brief and it was just supposed to be a couple clips and fine but in the first act there's a big chunk of flashbacks which i guess is goliath's memory of the whole thing and that's in there because the episode came back short it was boarded and timed it was just short and that's rare for any greg weissman production because i always (laughs) wrote long and it would drive my directors um and timing directors nuts that i would write long and they would go you had to know this was long and i'm like i didn't and they would say that can't be true you know you're just lying to yourself i'm like no because The page count is exactly the same as that, you know, because I always write to the maximum of whatever our page count was. And on Gargoyles, that was 39. Nowadays, I can't imagine doing a 22 minute episode in 39. I mean, that's way long. Um, You know, and sometimes those episodes that those page counts would be long and sometimes they'd be right on time. And once in a blue moon, they'd be short and short is way worse than long. You'd think it's the other way around because oh, we've got to cut all this great stuff to get it down to time. But short is even worse because it's like you've already built the thing. What are you going to add that isn't pure padding? And in this case, um, it'd be great. Uh, I, I, I don't trust my memory on this, but my guess is is that it wasn't just that it was short. It was that by the time we found out it was short, it was too late to add anything. Um so all we could add was flashback sequences. And so it just feels sad <laughs> to me that, you know, that we wasted that screen time um and we you know those flashbacks uh I think uh render the later flashbacks really feeling redundant but it was the later ones that were important. Because that was when um, Renard is showing Goliath, this is what you did. And it's a sort of reckoning moment for Goliath. But it means less if Goliath's already been thinking about that. You know, if, if Goliath's already sort of given us his version of it and all we're seeing is a shorter version that Renard's showing him, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah we've seen this. Come on. Um, so I think it it throws off the episode as a whole i mean the good news for me is that this episode is full of juicy stuff um might not have our best animation it obviously was too short and thus became padded um uh and you know no landing gear but um uh but still uh there's a lot of great juicy stuff in here which makes i think the episode still feel special and important and not just a waste of uh, space or anything like that. Um, and great performances by a number of our regulars, are recurring, and a couple fantastic guest actors.
1: Speaking of cool, the design work in this episode is excellent. And I realize each of those robots needs to be individually designed. And they designed a lot of robots. Each one, it looks industrial, like it has a different function. And a lot of thought was put into those.
0: Yeah. I mean, not literally each and every individual robot is separately designed but there were categories there were you know the flying cybots that attack Goliath at the beginning There, are the operational cybots that you know helm the ship there are the sort of guard sidebots that guard Goliath and little mechanical um, rover ones that are sort of the mechanics of the thing so there were at least four categories um but that was the idea that really we didn't want it to feel like, Oh, this is another guy who's got sophisticated robots like the Steel Clan or or something like that. That, but the, these were very specific, utilitarian. Yeah, utilitarian. Different style. This guy, you know, we didn't want Renard to come across as just second rate Xanatos. We wanted a different flavor to both his personality and and to
1: his technology. I remember watching this for the first time and it's fairly early in the episode. The first person we see is Travis Marshall followed by Preston Vogel. And I recall my jaw quite literally dropping at the sight of this guy and thinking, I never thought that that you guys were being cheap because I, by this time I was trusting the show completely. And I was thinking there has to be a reason here. There has to be something going on. And um, my first thought was that they were going to be revealed to be either they brothers or cousins.
2: And like, honestly, my first, my first thought was
0: like, they couldn't afford to get another character model. <laughs> it is a different model, by the way, I yeah. mean, it's designed intentionally to look similar, but it is a
1: different. Model.
2: <laughs> but like, uh, you know, like that's like a first impression kind of thing. But then it was, just, I honestly thought that they were related somehow
0: seeing the initial responses on the you know relatively new internet back in the day
2: back at the, I remember initially
0: yeah, <laughs> I remember initially being really pleased that people were like you know taking note of Vogel's similarities to Owen um, and then almost simultaneously being annoyed at the assumption that we were like cheap bastards who couldn't come up with a separate <laughs> model. <laughs> um, it's like by now, I feel like you guys should know there's a reason we're doing the shit that we're doing, but, um, and of course there is, but I don't know if we want to spoil it for your listeners who, uh, on the 30 year old show, but, uh, but there's a reason why Vogel is very, very reminiscent of, uh, Owen. And, um, that, you know, I think is fun when we get to it eventually. Um, But you know, it was very conscious um, to create a model that was very reminiscent of Owen, but wasn't literally just Owen colored with dark hair, you know, Um, and to get a voice actor, in this case, Peter Scolari, the late great Peter Scolari, who would give us the kind of um, Jeff Bennett read of Owen, like we, we intentionally, we, I mean, obviously we could have brought Jeff in and had Jeff play Vogel as well, but we weren't doing that. Um, we wanted a different actor, a different sound, but the same basic feel. And, um, and Peter had to do that without benefit of Jeff being there because Brooklyn or Owen aren't in this episode. Right. So although we had a full cast recording, this is one of the very few episodes without Jeff Bennett in it. Right. Um, and in those days, nowadays we could pull up a recording of Jeff doing Owen in, you know, 15 seconds in the, in the booth, right. And play it for Peter. But in those days, all that was on tape and we didn't have those tapes handy, you know? Um, and so, you know, we just described the character to Peter and between the lines and a little, bit of uh background from uh jamie thomason and myself peter just got it you know he just got that character and he's wonderful as vogel um and he gives us exactly what we were looking for which was something that was almost creepily owen-esque and he did that without ever having heard owen's voice once oh
2: he was fantastic
0: and that was an, mm-hmm. a great fun day i mean i'm uh a huge Peter Scolari fan, going back to Bosom Buddies. Bosom Buddies! Which I adored. <laughs> and after the session, we spent probably an hour, Jamie and I, talking with Peter about Bosom Buddies. <laughs> but I also, it's less popular to say nowadays for obvious reasons, but I was a huge fan of I Spy. Um, and so Robert Culp was another one of my heroes, as was back then, Bill Cosby back then to be clear not now <laughs> um and i loved that relationship between uh cope and cosby in i spy i just you know it was one of my all time favorite shows back in the day and um so having robert cope and peter scolari and i mean talk about brain clash because bosom buddies and i spy are two very different shows on one (laughs) level but they were about two buddies they were both you know about and having them both there was just like amazing and culp was incredibly precise in the booth like he knew that he got it the gist of the character very quickly he knew what um he wanted for that character And that was way more important to him than what Jamie wanted, (laughs) let alone what I wanted. But the thing was, is that he was, his instincts were so good. But what that meant was that we did a lot of takes with him, not because of us. I mean, we'd get it like first or second take. We'd be like, that's great. And he's like, I I can do it better. And we're like, we're good. No, I can do it better. And he was very precise about what he wanted. He could hear himself. And he could decide whether it was right or not. And what was, became interesting is that Peter, who, you know, Vogel is this uptight, rigid guy, but Peter is not or was not. Um, Peter was loose and easy, but he got Kolb's vibe. And keep in mind, um, 90% of, well, not that's not true, but all of, uh, Halcyon Renard's lines, all of Culp's lines were either with Goliath or with Vogel. And I'm trying to remember this was season two. And I cannot remember for sure if Keith was there because during a big chunk of season two, Keith was in New York and we were recording him separately um, because he was starring in, uh, uh, the August Wilson play seven guitars on Broadway. Um, I can't remember if this is one of the the episodes that, um, I mean, Keith would know and Jamie might remember, but I, I just can't keep them all straight. Um, but uh, so I don't know if Keith was there, but in essence, uh, Peter sort of became our cult whisperer, for lack of a better term. I mean, in other words, Jamie and I sort of stepped back and I don't want to say Peter directed cult That's not true. Culp was directing himself, but Peter worked with him in such a way to, um, get us what we needed while getting Robert, what he wanted out of his performance. And, uh, and it was a really interesting and different dynamic than, um, than I'm used to even now after doing that. I mean, back then, keep in mind, I'd been doing it for a year. Um, two years tops, you know, and now I've done it for 30 years, but, um, uh, but uh, that's was a rare occurrence and we got fantastic stuff from both of them, but they really sort of worked it out between them. And I have a very clear memory of that. And I don't have a clear memory of that in the Goliath scenes, which is why I think maybe this was an episode where Keith might've been in, uh, New York. New York when we recorded it I can't be sure, but I feel like that's probably the case because my memory of Peter and Robert working together is very clear. And I don't have a similar me- memory of Keith and Robert interacting. Um, but that just may be
1: me forgetting. Um not sure, but it was great working with them. And Renard and Goliath play off of each other really well. I mean, I, it sounds like they're in the same room together. Yeah, so thank you to Robert. Thank you to Keith. And thank you to Jamie for bringing all of that out of each of them, even though Robert was wrecking himself. So <laughs> we meet Halsey and Renard. And I recall it took me a little while watching this episode to really figure out what he was all about. And then it struck me in a way it's fascinating. This guy is ethical to the point where it's a character flaw. I'm not sure if I'd call it a character flaw, but it's
0: definitely makes life tough on him. Um, so look, the issue of integrity is really important to me. Um, but a lot of this episode, I mean, Carrie wrote it and story edited, Carrie Bates wrote and story edited, but a lot of this episode is very personal to me. Um, because these issues of integrity and how difficult it is to maintain integrity are something that i had and continue to give a lot of thought to. I think of myself as having integrity, but I don't think it comes naturally to me. I mean, I really don't. Um I think that you know, deciding to live a life of integrity is hard enough and then actually maintaining that on a day-to-day basis with all the interactions you have with so many people and how difficult effing human beings are to deal with um (laughs) it it becomes hard to remember let alone consistently behave uh with integrity you know there's the casual stuff that we all do myself included about hey i'm uh don't blame me for this blame that guy you know or uh I did the best I could. I don't know what to tell you. You know, um, just this act of not taking full responsibility for for things that you've done or having, and some of these excuses are legitimate, having excuses for it and falling back on those excuses and still not taking your share of the responsibility. Um, Those are issues that are really important to me. Now, what I really want to give Carrie credit for is, You know, I've got this soapbox that I want to stand on as a producer, right? Carrie then takes that and turns that soapbox into actual dialogue that works and doesn't feel like someone's preaching. Um, At least that's what I think. I think Carrie did a great job at taking these fairly intellectual issues that I wanted to cover in this story. And the thing that interested me about it is Goliath is a character. I think Keith would agree with this, who has just about more integrity than 90% of the characters you see in fiction, certainly 90% of the characters that I've written. You know, I, I very rarely write a character who has quite that much integrity. And yet to have someone else lecturing Goliath about integrity and have Goliath finally admit, you're right, I'm wrong. I thought that was sort of, wondrous, you know, uh, this idea that even someone with Goliath level of honesty and honor and integrity is capable of slipping, backsliding and all sorts of things. And every once in a while we need a reminder, wait a minute, we got a course correct here. This isn't right. It's not okay to say that the election was. All right. Sorry. I won't go there, but, um, uh, you know, this stuff matters. And so having Goliath not be the soapbox of not be the, the the speaker for integrity, because that's easy. He's our hero. We all know that. Right. But actually be the guy who has to say, yeah, I was wrong. Uh, I owe you a debt because I did something that hurt you. I've got to help fix that. Um, That to me is what makes the episode, the core of the episode work. If it had been Goliath lecturing someone else, I think we all would have yawned and sort of went our separate ways. You know, it's the fact that it's Goliath
1: who needs the lesson is what to me makes it strong. uh, I think fully agree there's a lot of other cartoon heroes that i can point to and they would be the ones giving the speeches i mean so i thought it was very daring to do that very honest also and you know i think about things of integrity a lot when i watch this and lord knows i fail more often than not but you know when i'm wrong about things i try to admit it and um you know, and I try to do my best. I try to course correct when someone points out that I'm wrong. But you know, it's also difficult. Sometimes it's pride that stands in your way, or you know what, I don't like this person, so I'm not gonna acknowledge that they might be correct about something. And it's yeah, it's difficult. I mean it is, it's hard. I'm, it's really hard. I mean
0: a lot of this episode, not that my father's anything like Halcyon Renard, he's not, but a lot of this episode comes out of um my impression of my father for whom who I has a lot of integrity. And for me, it's probably not true, but it strikes me even now that integrity is just such a core of who he is that um you know that he's sort of got this lighthouse that you know this true north or whatever that points him in that direction. I do not have that. I don't I I work it ha- at maintaining integrity. Um and I slip up sometimes. I do. Um in fact often. But um but that I think it's really hard. I mean I think for again for most people maintaining that is incredibly difficult. Um and there are rewards to it and there are costs to it. Um but I think it's important. Um, And, you know, when I was a kid, I lied all the time and I was good at it. I'm not good at lying anymore, but, um, but when I was a kid, I once, um, I knew how to lie by telling the truth. I would tell the truth badly in such a way that people became convinced that the truth was false because I was telling it so badly. I was telling it in a way that sounded shifty. Um, and I once came very close to convincing a a girl I was interested that I was a robot by strongly <laughs> protesting the notion that, that I was a robot, you know, by saying over and over again, how I was a, not a robot. That's not true. <laughs> well, now um, I
2: think you're a robot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. I was in high
1: school.
2: No, like, no, like, no, just the opposite is happening here.
1: <laughs> wow. that's impressive (laughs) that's an advanced ai for
0: 1994 i'll tell you (laughs) (laughs) oh my lord but you know i lying is not a good thing
2: generally speaking i mean it's not a terrible liar i can't
1: Different show, but I know you're right. It's, it's definitely a different show, but I remember watching an interview with Vince Gilligan after Breaking Bad ended, and he, in his mind, the worst things that Walter did were just all the lies, the way he gaslighted and broke down his family doing that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, like I said, this one was, you know, one of a handful of, you know, all of the Gargoyles episodes were important to me, but this was one of a handful that was particularly personal to me. And it was one of the reasons it was great to be working with Carrie because Carrie and I had been writing partners back in our captain Adam days. And so he knew me, uh, you know, the internal workings of the Weissman mind better than, than Michael or Bryn or, or Gary. Um, and, uh, he was able to, like I said, sort of translate these speeches I wanted to give into dialogue that, um, that uh, I think played and and had moment to it as opposed to just speechified.
1: Of course, I have to say, Re- Renard also has his own biases. There's a part of me I listen to his dialogue, and I cannot believe that Anton Savarius was ever a poor soul. That's this the yeah. evil viper Xanatos ever came along. And well, that's I, I feel
2: like that's just him vilifying Xanatos, like so that anyone who is. Uh, gone over to Xanatos' side. Must you know? Must have been lured there by his evil
0: kind of thing, right? I mean, it starts with this guy has got some spell on my daughter. You know, <laughs> it's like uh, that's where it starts. <laughs> then it, once you, you know, kind of refuse to acknowledge that maybe my daughter and he are just perfect for each other because you don't want to acknowledge that for very personal reasons, um, you know, then suddenly Xanatos becomes the villain and Bernard at one point literally calls him that villain Villain. Xanatos, you know? Um, and, uh, and then once he becomes a villain, anything Xanatos does becomes part of that tapestry. You know, Owen went over there. Savarius went over there and what they've done since it's horrible. If they had stayed with me, they never would have done that stuff which is true because Renard I wouldn't have wouldn't had have the funding them. for it. <laughs> well, Renard <laughs> wouldn't have let them do it, but also the one of the reasons they went there's cuz they wanted to do that kind of shit, you know. Um yeah. and uh and then, you know, Xanatos has in fact done some truly villainous things. He arranged for the gargoyles in episodes 4 and 5 to uh trash 3 of Cyberbiotics installations, crashing Fortress one, stealing technology, and using them to build flying robots, you know. Um, so you know, he's not all that wrong about Xanatos. It's just (laughs) what he doesn't get that we all get is how charming David is. You know, he does not see the charm to David Xanatos that we do, that we forgive David almost anything because he's just so damn much fun. Um, (laughs) Halcyon does not think Xanatos is fun. Um, I want to talk a little about the name, uh, Halcyon Renard. So, uh, I wanted, so that's a very much Bates Weitzman name because I wanted to use the name Renard and, um, as the last name, so that it would tie into Fox's identity um, and her and their collective French American roots and um, Calvinistic roots, because I thought of Renard as a very Calvinistic character. Um, and then, uh, Carrie comes up with the name Halcyon, and I'm like, "That's quite a name. That's quite a mouthful, Halcyon." Isn't it? I'm like, "Okay." And then, in his first draft, Carrie wrote the character's made renard the first name and halcyon the last name and i was like no i don't want that because it said something different about fox taking the name fox if her name originally was janine halcyon then her choosing fox as a name seems like she's choosing it from her father's first name like she's um emulating him in some way she's fox jr in essence but if Renard is just her last name, then um, she's just taking a piece of her identity and focusing on it. Something
2: that already um, belongs to her, right? not something she's borrowing from someone else.
0: Exactly. So uh, so Janine Renard becomes Fox. Um, but I was wondering for you guys, I don't know if you remember. I mean, when you were introduced to Halstine Renard and you heard his name, which happens, you know, four or five minutes before you even meet the character. um, Did that clue you into any relationship between Renard and Fox?
2: I mean, I, I understand Renard is Fox, but I didn't put it together at all. For some reason.
1: I chose to take Spanish instead of French. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it doesn't mean Fox. Renard was a well,
0: famous yeah. sort of Renard the Fox.
1: Renard I the Trickster. I, I, I did not know yeah. that story at the time. I know it now, but. <laughs> but yeah,
0: so, um, and, you know, and I was hoping people wouldn't know. I, you know, I wanted it to work in hindsight. I didn't want it to be so obvious that people were like going, oh, I bet that's I bet that's her father, you know, kind of thing. But, in, but you um, know, if you're watching the episode for a second time, there are all these clues laid out Throughout, both in the scene, in the scenes with Fox and Xanatos, in the clandestines, you know, conversations between Fox and Vogel, and some of the things that Renard says to uh, Goliath, it's all there. And when we are planting a ton of seeds. You know, he, he mentions Janine, but he also mentions Anastasia. And We don't explain who Anastasia and Janine are initially. By the end, you know who Janine is, but you still don't know who Anastasia was but that's coming and then uh you know i'm probably getting ahead of your outline greg but um you know the big revelation at the end which um when xanatos says to her your doctor's calling with test results and he's worried um he because he's has no idea she's taken a pregnancy test he so he's worried that you know is she sick is something wrong did anyone cue in to what those results might be or did you sort of forget about it because we immediately moved on to action stuff on the on fortress too
2: no that 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 caught my attention that one big time caught right my too. attention like yeah. that was a that was a hook i was supposed to pay attention
0: to like mm-hmm. but did you guess what the results were about
2: I mean, I had four kids at the time. So, yeah, I, I kind of put my own like spin on it and what I thought it would be.
1: <laughs> That's what I thought it was also. You know, one of the things I like about this is we were talking about how Xanatos and Fox are perfect for each other. But I like seeing the subtle differences between them as well. He seems to be much more about acquisition than she is. I think she's way more about the game to the point where Renard even says at the end, you know, I would even give it to you now if you would just stand up and ask me for it honestly. And I have a feeling that Xanatos would urge her to do that just to avoid some of the trouble.
2: But she wants the fun. What's the fun of exactly. that? But, right.
1: yeah. I think you're right, Greg. I mean,
0: I think that, I mean, you're both right. It, she uh, Xanatos doesn't come up with these complex plans, you know, for the hell of it. Um, they're necessary for him to achieve his end. If it's as simple as, I'm going to ask you for something and you give it to me, then why wouldn't he do that? You know, in other words, um, I think that Xanatos would in fact uh, urge her to just ask for it. If he knew that was a possibility. Um, but I think you're right, Jen, that uh, you know, that's no fun. That's not the game. The game is, can I take it from him? You know, and uh, even if I have to, you know destroy 90% of it in the process. Um she'd rather do it that way. And um and when she comes in at the end she's sort of like I nearly had you that time.
2: <laughs> so you know this yeah. isn't her first like <laughs> yeah, go around not, with this like right. she's played and this game that, before.
0: <laughs> and she's shameless about it. I mean absolutely shameless, you know. Um and By the time she arrives and he's had some time to think about all this, you know, he knows who it was, whether or not Vogel told him he would have figured it out anyway. Um, And so when she's walking up behind him and, you know, we wanted that to be a little bit scary. I'm not sure it comes off that way, the way it's animated, but um, you know, she tried to take the company. She failed. Is she now there to kill him? You know, she's, use that acid to bust into the um i liked how that acid uh, corroded through the metal but had no effect on the rope that she put down <laughs> <laughs> i i
2: can i can explain that like it's only effective for this long and then it's inert right. and then yeah there you go
0: <laughs> and then i thought it was funny she drops that rope down and then she jumps down without using the rope at all <laughs> and i was like and then later she uses it to climb up and out. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess that's why. But it also felt a little bit like it's just not that high a ceiling. We've seen her. I'm like, why did we do this thing with the rope? I've com- I'm com- <laughs> Anyway, that doesn't matter. But uh, it looks cool. But there's
2: no landing gear on the ship. <laughs> no landing gear,
0: goddammit. Um, but she, uh, she comes in. And she's sneaking up on him, or it seems to be. And before he even turns around, he's like, you know, hello, Janine. Because he knows she's coming. He knows what this was all about. And he also pretty much knows it's not Xanatos. I mean, he doesn't really want to admit it to himself. He's got blind spots, too. But the fact of the matter is, is this isn't Xanatos. This is the girl he raised. And that's uh, tough for him. Uh, it's tough for him to sort of get his head around and it's tough for him to acknowledge. And, and uh, you know, and he loves her. They're walking down the hallway together and, you know, he's got a lot of trappings of a cliche villain, you know, the withered form in the hover chair, you know, with all the buttons at his disposal. And so that was sort of fun for us to sort of take a guy who, answers all these tropes for the cliche villain. Right. And then say, no, this is the guy with the most integrity we've got in the show, even more than our lead hero, you know? Um, and at the end they're not fighting. They're just walking down and he is not even, I wouldn't even say he's disappointed in her. He's just doesn't get her. There's just this disconnect between father and daughter. He doesn't understand what she cares about what she values doesn't can't get his head around her at all and she understands him better but you know she won't bend a bit in his direction either uh, um
2: how old is halcyon like he's like 500 million years old right
0: <laughs> <laughs> well he's not as old as he looks that was intentional um because
1: let me pull up the uh, see if I can find him on the timeline just to say Is that the guard wiki timeline or your timeline my timeline nice the one that I would give my left foot to have five minutes reading <laughs> so Renard
0: was born in 1928 um halcyon was born in 1928 so if this episode I think was set in 95. Yeah. So he's, you know, it's not ancient, but he's not, uh, you know,
1: not a kid either. Um, obviously 1995 minus 1928
2: equals. That equals
0: math.
1: Right. I'm, I'm trying to avoid doing math. Give me a second.
0: <laughs> He's 67. So, um, that's what 67. I'm going to look
2: like at 67 for sure.
0: <laughs> I mean, he's suffering um, from uh, MS, and and it is, you know, debilitating. Um, and so, in his case, at least, uh, not necessarily in the case of everyone with MS, but in his case, it, it, you know, he looks a lot older than he is. I also think back then everybody looked a lot older than we look. Now. Um, I'm older than Wilford Brimley in Cocoon. Um,
2: I'm older than the Golden Girls.
1: <laughs> I'm older than
0: Abe Vagoda in Barney Miller.
1: <laughs> Watch that yes. Star Trek Next Generation up to the finale where they predict how old everyone will be in 20 years and they all look much younger than that still. <laughs> We're all doing great.
2: We're t- amazing. We are. <laughs> we are still smoking hot.
0: <laughs> so uh, you know, there's a generational thing, certainly, and there's the sort of standard parent-child divide that is its own trope, I suppose. But but you can also just see there is a fundamental gap in his understanding of her. Um, though he's very aware on one level of her nature. And they're both stubborn as hell, which is one thing that that I find really creatively satisfying is that you can also see what they have. Where they're
2: alike, yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's easy to see where they're different, but it's not that hard to see how they're alike. And that to me is a lot of fun. And then I do think the revelation about her pregnancy is one of the, true uh truly most subversive things we we that we ever did on the show
1: it Um, is we've we've talked about that a lot before but you know what this is the out fox episode i suppose we can go through that one more time (laughs) i mean a i just love the sort of subtle double take
0: way that we revealed it it's not like hey i'm david i'm pregnant yay you know kind of thing it's like she just sort of says well maybe she she takes his hand puts it on her stomach and says maybe you'll have better luck with the next generation and he's like what <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> um and he's like that's right you're going to be a grandfather and she gets up and she flies away and then it puts a different flavor on everything you've seen with her in the entire episode um her practicing Jujitsu, or or whatever, with David. Her uh, phone call with the doctor. Her uh, decisions about with Vogel about what to do. Um, about Fortress Two. All that stuff is just given a different flavor to it. And then, of course, it sets up a ton for what we've got going down the road. Um, and but I do think just the fact of her pregnancy. I mean, again, I like how we delivered it here, but I think just the fact of her pregnancy was truly sort of subversive. I don't think any show was doing that <laughs> in animation in the '90s before us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I guess uh, I can't remember. have I, I guess, have I told the story about Frank and I going to lunch with Gary. Yes, but it's out. talking pops, about so this. Go right ahead.
1: All right, well, this pops. is You're after out
0: yeah yeah this was months later there had been some shows that were having some difficulty at the studio and gary had been really focused on those and then he took frank and i to lunch and he was actually gary Chrysler was our boss he was the head of uh disney television animation um at the time and uh one of my mentors and um he said uh he was actually apologetic. He's like, I have been focused on all these other things and I haven't paid any attention to what's going on with gargoyles. So just tell me what's been going on with the show. Oh, it's been going great. And we talked about production and, and you know, what are you doing creatively with it? And so we sort of went through some of our storylines and, and said, and then, you know, and Xanatos and Fox got married and they're having a baby. And he's like, Whoa, Whoa, whoa. you can't do that um i mean the marriage is okay i guess two villains getting married that's weird but i guess that's okay but uh you they you can't give them a baby i mean you know what are we going to do with that kid we can't let two villains raise the kid um that's you know horrible to leave this kid in the hands of villains but we can't take the baby away from its parents you i mean we just there's no good scenario here is what he was saying to us um and uh you know, Frank and I just sort of exchanged a glance (laughs) and the, and I said to him, he, so he said, don't do that. And I said to him, we've already done it, Gary. And that, and it was true, you know, and, you know, Frank and I were incredibly nervous because in that moment, if Gary had wanted to, he could have ordered a halt to everything. He could have ripped up our production schedule and, and, uh, ripped up our storytelling for the last, you know, 20 plus episodes, right. Um, of the season and, and made us rewrite a ton of shit and, um, and rethink even more. And, um, it could have been a disaster for us. So we're like, Frank and I are just sitting there waiting with bated breath, so to speak, as Gary is just silent for a period of time. Which I'm sure was like, I don't know, four seconds or something, but from our point of view, it <laughs> like seemed like forever. it went on forever. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and I mean, I knew exactly what was going through his head. There'd been problems on goof troop. There'd been problems on bonkers, uh, all different sorts. Um, you know, and it all came out fine, I guess in the end, um, uh, yeah, you know, i got my issues with bonkers, but that's a whole other thing. But, uh, uh, you know there'd just been a bunch of shows that had gone through various crises, and I could tell what was going through his head, um, which was uh okay, I can, you know, put the brakes on gargoyles too and tear that apart. I'll have one more show in trouble, schedule trouble and budget trouble and all this sort of stuff. And and what I really feel to this day won out for us was exhaustion. He just the thought. Of doing that, the notion of doing that exhausted him. So he just sort of looked at us and said, "All right, fine, just don't dwell on it." And Frank and I are both like, "Oh no, we won't dwell <laughs> on it." Well, yeah, of course we won't dwell on it. I didn't it even won't know what be that any meant. Any kind of major
2: plot point at all?
0: <laughs> I didn't even know what that <laughs> meant in that context. Don't dwell on it. What does that mean? I mean, you know, don't linger the camera on. I don't know, but uh, it. it But we just said, no, no, we won't dwell on it. We moved on and that was fine. But yeah, we had a moment there where the whole thing really fell apart. And, um, and I'm so glad it didn't because I think it's one of the most satisfying aspects of, uh, the latter half of season two, um, is everything surrounding, um, the birth of Alexander, um, and, uh, so much great storytelling and character stuff came out of that notion, which in turn came out of the notion of Fox being in love with Xanatos. And then that, that, you know, came out of a voice recording session. Um, And, and it really brought us a great character in Fox. Whereas, you know, our original conception of Fox is she's the leader of the pack, you know, she's, you know, she's dangerous, blah, blah, blah. But she wasn't necessarily I'm going to say all that interesting in that role, but as Xanatos' wife and equal, and as the mother of, excuse me, as the mother of Alexander and the daughter of Halcyon and Anastasia, particularly given who they turn out to be down the road, um, that gave us a phenomenal character um in Fox that of course Laura Sanje Como did a just a wonderful job in this episode and every episode at just bringing so much innuendo and subtle sort of uh
2: deviousness and
0: deviousness and, and danger and um, but it's sexy just,
2: sexy danger, like she's right. just I mean, so you just, good.
0: Uh, you just really felt like who could possibly be mate to Xanatops, you know, who could possibly be his equal? And you're like, she could. Um, and, uh, and that was just kind of, again, we had along the way, these sort of wondrous discoveries that led to such great content. And, uh, you know, even today when I'm writing gargoyles for the comic, you know, when I've got a scene with Fox in it, I've got Laura's voice in my head and, and, um, you know, we haven't had a, an issue that's focused on Fox yet, but we will eventually, uh, if all goes well. And, uh, and, uh, but just even just, you know, one or two scenes that we've had with her and, and the little bit of dialogue she has, it's just, this is a fascinating character and. Um, So I'm glad all our plans
1: weren't derailed at that one lunch. (laughs) Same. Same. I also have to point out there's some fascinating character moments with Xanatos here that are a bit subtle. It's almost like he's trying to um, not talk her into doing it, but he's, in effect, giving her permission to um, pull the plug on this scheme in a way. Do you really want to hurt your father like this? I am a feeling he's thinking about his own relationship with his father.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, they both got these sort of fraught paternal relationships, but they're almost polar opposites, you know? Um Xanatos though, he probably wouldn't admit it is still trying to impress his father. And, but, um,
2: but again, like he's, his dad's very much about integrity as well. Mm-hmm. So like um, it's similar, but like in a different angle,
0: different flavor. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Xanatos is still trying to at least unconsciously please his dad. And Fox doesn't care about that at all. I, I don't think, you know, I don't think she wanted her dad hurt. I don't think it was ever part of the plan for him to go down with the ship. I don't think she's murderous towards him at all.
2: Well, I think it, but Preston I think was supposed that, to get him off the ship.
0: Right, exactly. Um, but I do think that, you know, she's not worried about him, his opinion of her. That she, in that sense, you know, we talk about our Xanatos and Fox equals. It's like, uh, well, not really. She's up here. He's over here. She's way more evolved than he is. Um, <laughs> you know uh and even in the you know the jujitsu scene um you know again we were very careful to show that physically they're equals as well you know um if he takes her down on one throw she's taking him down on the next one um and that seems always fun for me because um my kids were lit when my kids were little, um we dressed them up as Fox and Xanatos at <laughs> one of the gatherings, but we didn't have full costumes for them, but they both took karate. Um, and so they uh so they uh dressed up as Fox and Xanatos in their gi, Um, which was so every time I see that scene, I just think of my kids who are you know grown ups now. Living on the damn east coast.
2: They do that. Kids do that. They turn yeah, into the grownups.
0: I
1: don't know who gave them permission for
0: that. I
1: don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Another great moment in an episode full of them. I Vogel's turn, it doesn't feel forced or sudden at all. I am really... a cartoon villain. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> Gary. To, the, to our audio. Gary, hmm? <laughs> That's right, to our audio listeners, Greg was just holding no. up his pet cat. <laughs> but really, Vogel's turn, it didn't feel forced, it didn't feel sudden at all. You have a feeling these two works together for a long time, and Vogel, despite himself, despite what he's planning to do here, respects the guy, cares about the guy.
2: It makes me wonder how Fox pulled him into this in the first place. Like what was promised him? Like we, I get, you know, we get that there's money, but I feel like there needed to be more there than just that. um, For, for someone who is so in tune with Halcyon to turn on him like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, and I don't mean in the sense of sex, but I think she's got a seductive personality. You know,
2: there is nothing not seductive about her. <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. So, I mean, it,
0: it, and I and I don't mean she was trying to seduce him in the literal sort of like to sleep with her kind of sense. I don't think that's it at all. But I think she probably had a knack for figuring out um what it is he wanted, what it is he believed he needed. Um And, you know, and who knows what the pitch was, but it might have included. You know, this whole Fortress 2 thing was, this, was hubris. You know, it was arrogance. You know, the need for this flying science lab is preposterous. You know, um, it's symbolic of his power and authority. And it's a ridiculous expense. And so he's clearly leading, you know, he's getting up there. He's sick. He's leading the company in the wrong direction. And it's gonna be my company. We both know that, Vogel, right? You know, you know he's gonna leave it to me in the end. Um, so why don't I get it now before he goes nuts and builds a fortress three, you know? Um, and I don't even know that Carrie and I talked about it in even that much detail, but that's the basic idea is that um it's hard not to be vulnerable to Fox because. She's so smart, you know, and and uh and again, you know, it is a family business. Um, and Vogel uh has been working for the family for a long time, longer than Owen's been working for um Xanatos, and with a more human motivation set than Owen has. So, you know. Uh, and a a shorter uh, view of the world that Owen has. So it becomes I think a little easier because Vogel is only human in the end for him to be uh, susceptible to all that Fox had to offer both in terms of
1: fiduciary rewards and whatever logic she presented and Goliath scaring a confession out of him is one of my favorite scenes in the episode.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun. I do wonder, I'm actually kind of, imp- this episode, I was actually kind of impressed with Goliath. Like, how did he put together that Vogel was behind it? Was it because Vogel was accusing him? Um, setting like, I know him I up? Must, yeah, so it occurred to him, well, I know I didn't do it. So who's the likely suspect? Well, it's not one of these robots. The robots were infected, but it's not like they came up with this idea. It clearly wasn't Renard. Maybe it's the guy who's been telling Renard that it was me. Um, But it's still for Goliath, you know, who isn't a detective. He's not Broadway. He's not, you know, um, he's not, he doesn't have the sort of, you know, uh, logical mind that Lex has or the agile mind that Brooklyn has. It's a, it's, it's kind of impressive to me, you know, um, I don't th- Goliath is smart, but I don't think of him as being sort of like a, uh, someone who's good with puzzles, you know, um, someone who, uh, makes that intellectual jump, but maybe it it wasn't that hard to jump given the lack of suspects. I mean, I don't think Goliath, for example, knew, Oh, and Fox was behind it. You know, I don't think there's any way he could have known that. No, I think he just knew who was immediately behind. it. And then I love Goliath's little sort of corrective to Halcyon at the end. after Halcyon's been sort of lecturing him for most of the episode, Goliath sort of says, I think your idea is right, but I think you've got everything backwards. You know, it's not the robots. It's not the cybots that um, you can count on. You can't count on them at all because they're at the mercy of whoever programs
2: one chip and they all went haywire.
0: Right. Um, Whereas Vogel had the opportunity to complete this betrayal, but he was capable of changing and, and, uh, and Vogel has that great line. Peter Scalari reads so well, because it's so subtle, but it's all there where when he's helping Renard change, the course of uh, Fortress Two, uh, so it doesn't hit the tower, you know. And Renard doesn't suspect Vogel at all yet. Um, he goes, "Oh, Vogel, I knew you wouldn't let me down." And Vogel's like, "Well, sir, you have that effect on people, you know." <laughs> it's like, "I'm not going to get paid now." <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Like, he's not happy about it. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's a part of him that loves the old guy. And there's a part of him certainly doesn't want the old guy dead, for sure. And um, and admires him, you know, admires the trust that he has in Vogel. You see that throughout the episode. You know, when he first gets on a call with Fox, she's like, Is it safe to talk? And he's like, Yeah, of course it is. You know, your dad would never eavesdrop on me. It's just not who he is. I've always admired him for that trusts um and uh so there's a lot to admire about halcyon in a package that you know makes it difficult to love him you know um easy to admire him and sometimes difficult to love him but underneath it all you get the sense that fox does love her father that vogel does love and respect his boss it just uh took
1: some course correction and I have a feeling yeah, with Fox, especially, there's just so much backstory that we still don't yet know, which fascinates me. I'm just thinking about how she got from point A to. We well, you know how she got from point B to point C, but from point A to point B, I'm still hoping that sometime soon, especially with the new comic, you'll be able to shed some light on that. Maybe
0: <laughs> well, it depends on you know if the books keep selling, you know. And- um,
2: and so in the end Goliath gets to walk away with an, another human friend.
0: That's right. And and that I, was important to us too.
2: I, I absolutely love that line though. A ship for a ship? No. No. We're not even. We're friends. Um so uh and in uh, so on top of this all, uh we've managed to get another ally for Goliath. Take that, Fox. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and that was like I said, that was sort of important to us that it uh as much as Elisa might have liked to have been their only friend, as we'll see coming up. Uh um, oh, I've got thoughts on that sure- next time. Right. <laughs> but uh uh, you know, it was important that um Goliath's mindset is is that if we are good and do what we you know, if we protect this castle, Manhattan, and we um in essence, act with integrity, which is thematic, obviously, to the episode, um, that slowly, but surely the humans will come to see us for who we really are, not as monsters. And so it, it becomes important as opposed to, you know, always returning things back to the way they were at the beginning of each episode, you know, um, that the story's always advancing, and that includes Goliath getting a new friend. It includes Fox now being pregnant. We always want to advance the story for our characters and not leave it as, oh, I've got to return this to status quo antebellum, you know, uh, with each episode. And and that step by step, our characters are going to get more and more allies. They're also going to get more and more enemies because, you know, it's an action show. but. Um, <laughs> but uh but we always wanted to balance that with more and more allies and and again that's where renard's tropish appearance you know um helps us out because you know you sit there and you realize over the course of the episode oh this guy isn't the villain we thought he was the villain he's sending robots out to shoot goliath we thought he was the villain um and then it's like, Oh no, he's not the villain. It's Vogel and Fox who are the villain, but it's not just that he's not the villain.
1: He's actually become their newest friend. And that's going to matter down the road. And I hope we see him again in the comics sometime too. Me too. Keep sales oh. up everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Is there anything, any note that we didn't hit yet on this episode?
0: Don't th-
2: one of the things like, uh, that really caught my attention this time that I don't think I've even paid attention to really much before was Goliath uh, talking about how he'd be a science experiment Like, yeah, sure. You know, we we were working towards humans, um, accepting them, but he's, he's kind of aware that to modern humans, he's a freak kind of thing. um, and uh, like i like it was seemed like a given before but now looking at it it's like he's had time to think about how everyone would really react to a gargoyle in modern day
0: yeah i mean he's definitely getting more savvy i mean here at this stage he's a year in to being in the 20th century remember the 20th century <laughs> I, i grew up in the 20th century um yeah he's you know he's been there a year he's gotten a sense of um what people's reactions are to gargoyles uh he's um it's all you know some of the naivete that he had in season one it's not all gone but some of it is some of that Fish out of water naivete is has started to uh, evaporate. And, um, he's gotten a better sense of things, I think, um, than he had early on. I think you're right that early on, like season one, you know, they'd throw me in a dungeon or something. You know, I don't think <laughs> the notion of science experiments would have particularly occurred to him. You know, maybe burn me at the stake or something. But you know, um, he'd be thinking in more medieval terms. And by this time, a year in, he's thinking in more modern terms, um,
1: which are no less chilling, you know, um, just different. I think we had a great discussion on this. And um, is there anything? I think it's pretty mediocre, but all right. (laughs) (laughs) This will be coming out at the end of April, considering the current schedule we're on. We're going to, we hope to be back to bi monthly soon, no, bi weekly soon. Listeners, but um end of April, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh
0: so April, so what is that issue five by April? Is that
1: where we we'll think be? so? Yeah.
0: So, so yeah, issue five of gargoyles is out. And if you haven't picked them up already, issues one through four are already out there and available. Um I'm really uh I finished the script issue five. Um, and I'm really happy with it. Um, And I've seen at the time we're recording this, I've seen um, the art for issue four, all the art for issue four. And it is uh, George has just knocked it out of park, I think on issue four. And uh, um, he's working on five as we speak Um, But 4 I'm just so excited for everyone to see four, three just came out and, response has been pretty good i'm pretty happy but uh i can't wait for people to see four because this is when i think the book really kicks into gear with issue four excellent so yeah. by
1: six by five and six we should be rocking <laughs> yeah we'll probably have our first impressions of issue five at the beginning of this phoenix gates stuff guys <laughs> listeners. but um that's what we'll end up doing and um all right so issue five will be out you've heard our first impressions now Next month, issue six, and um, our next show is going to be about Revelations, not the price. They go out of
2: order on
1: Disney Plus at this point. Disney
2: Plus. So if you're following along on Disney Plus, we're not doing the price next.
1: We'll get to it. It's a great episode, but not next time. But we're going to have fun with Matt Bluestone next time. My boy! (laughs) Little (laughs) daddy. And Greg, thank you for everything. Jen, thank you for being a great partner in crime. And um, we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank Bye. you.
2: Thank you for listening to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast, powered by the Spidey Dude Radio Network, located at spidey-dude.com. If you like this show, then please listen to Spectacular Radio, based on the Spectacular Spider-Man animated series, which features some familiar voices. You can also find these great podcasts, Clone Saga Chronicles, Make Mine Mayday, Amazing Spider-Man Classics, The Sal Busema Podcast, and Books of X. All of this and more on the Spidey Dude Radio Network. And please follow us on Twitter at from eerie. That's from e y r i e. And join us on Patreon at patreon.com/spideydude network for more exclusive content. Thank you.
1: Oh, Daddy. You and your integrity. Asking for it wouldn't be any fun at
0: all.